Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. It gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce you to Matt Tyler, uh, not only an esteemed alumni member of the Menzies Foundation, a more recent, though I think, Matt, you've been a director now for over a year of the Menzies Foundation, but also Executive Director of the Men's Project at Jesuit Social Services. Matt, welcome to the Menzies Leadership Forum today. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the discussion. So, Matt, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how you began your association with the Menzies Foundation. So it was a, a little while back now, Liz. It was probably 2014. And on reflection, I was in I was in the midst of a bit of a transition, I guess. I had spent um, five years in uh, management consulting and had uh, actually become quite sick um, uh, and was in some respects forced to transition back to my purpose. Um, you know, I'm grateful for the the time in consulting. It gave me um, it gave me a skill set that I still draw on today, but um, had spent um, some time in the Kimberley, um, working with a focus on Aboriginal men's health, um, some time in in um, India working with um, JPAL, a group out of MIT, and, and then had um, spent a couple of years working on our aid program and found myself transitioning out of the aid program. It was a new coalition government that had sort of pivoted away from things that I was really passionate about in terms of addressing poverty and, and was working with Claire O'Neill. Um, who, of course, is a Kennedy School alumni, and I had never, um, never in a million years, considered the possibility of of studying at Harvard. And I think, um, you know, I'm grateful to Claire because she increased my aspiration of of what what it is that might be possible. Um, and so, I'd been I'd been admitted to Harvard, and put put bluntly, Liz, I was thinking I can't make this work without without a without a scholarship and so um i um i first interacted with the menzies foundation because um i was seeking some support to make that that overseas study work um and you know very grateful for the support because as i say it wouldn't have been possible without it um also grateful for the relationships that i've built as a result um the the chair of the committee at the time who um, I only only met through the process was um, was an incredible woman, um, Kim Rubenstein, who um, is a new academic, of course, ran um, ultimately unsuccessful, but an impressive campaign recently um, at the federal senate in Canberra. Um, and so, yes, very grateful for the support I've had, and and equally grateful to have the opportunity, as you touched on, Liz, to give back as um, as a member of the board, and and you know, work have the opportunity to work with you. What a treat. <laughs> I love that, Matt. Well, we are so delighted to have you. Tell us a little bit about what you studied at Harvard and what that experience was like, Matt, because it's a most extraordinary place in the world, is it? Is it not? So what did you actually study? Yeah, it really is. Liz. It's an um, incredible place to spend some time. So I studied the uh, Masters of uh, Public Policy, um, which is, um, you know, a deliberately broad, broad degree 
Um, it gave me the chance to jump into everything from economics to ethics to um, a course at the business school focused on, um, you know, power and influence. Um, power, I think, sometimes seen as, as a sort of a dirty word, but I think um, it's it's not at all in my mind. It's the reality of the world we live in, and it's a matter of how you um, how you decide to to sort of use that power. And so, coursework was wonderful. I think there's also something about the place, and I know I know you've spent time there, Liz, where um, there's no limit on on what's possible. Um, you know, I think there's a certain um, which is a good thing in some respects, but there's a certain egalitarianism in Australia which can um which can stifle what it is that might be possible and I think by virtue of um by virtue and you know again in some respects unfortunately the the um esteem within which the Harvard brand is held the convening power that the institution demands is significant um and so the people we we got the chance to be exposed to was incredible and then I guess I was there at a time that was really significant. Like I was there in the lead up to the 2016 uh, presidential election, had the opportunity to work on uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign in New Hampshire, which ended up being decided, um, you know, by just a handful of votes, the, the, the Senate race up there, which had a significant bearing on the affordable care vote. You know, that was decided by one vote. Um, and to see a country, and I think about this a lot in the Australian context, to see a country, um, you know, unfold so quickly, you know, you, you think back that, to things like the Muslim ban um, and, you know, really, I guess, in some respects, proud to have worked on that campaign, proud subsequently to have worked with a number of Australians to um, lobby our own parliament, and it did end up being tabled in Parliament with a petition from um, hundreds of Australians living in the US to to reassert our values um, in the midst of I think a uh, um, and this is this is you know I, I view this as a sort of a non-partisan statement in the midst of a of a presidency that really undermined what I see as as um, you know democratic ideals that underpin a decent society. Um, so yes, it was um, it was an incredible time to be in the US and um, Harvard itself, I think, gave me the opportunity as well to um, to contribute back in Australia. You know, I, I had the chance to write in a number of mainstream Australian publications on issues like homelessness, um, empowerment of First Nations people. And the final thing I'll say, which is something I, uh, I think, again, I learn a lot from and there's value in, I, I ended up writing a a sort of a monthly column for the leading conservative outlet in the US. Um, I'd identify as a sort of a, um, you know, a, a liberal or someone to the centre-left and I would write these columns to put the conservative case for arguably progressive causes and um, and learn a lot in terms of the power of, of language and framing and all the things that, um, that drive the way we, we navigate the world, I guess. So uh, one of the things that struck me, and I think that point you make about anything's possible, and just that it was also the sort of globalised nature of the people that you sit in rooms with, the diversity, the huge range of opinions, cultural contexts. Um, 
I found I find that enormously interesting and stimulating. Do you know what I mean? I think that um, you and I were talking previously about this nexus between local and global, and I think one of the things for the pandemic has been the impact of global and an increasing responsibility for what's happening in our own back garden, a backyard, and how we connect into the world. But Matt, it seems from an early age you've been connected into the world in terms of even the work you've described. Um, where does that come from, Matt? Where does this sense of your responsibility and your bigger obligation come from? I'll give you the 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 I guess meaningful. There's a superficial answer to that, Liz, but I'll give you. Please be I'll, meaningful, Matt. I'll, Please I'll be put, meaningful. Like anyone, like anyone listening to this, we're just a function of of what we've been exposed to, and you know, I was brought up by um, single and very hardworking mum um, and a dad that was really horribly addicted to gambling, um, which had profound impacts not just on our family's life but on uh, people in in his life. He wasn't, and this this is, I think, in, you know, this underpins, I, I, I'm truly of the belief that there's good in everyone. Um, he behaved and lived a life that was, um, you know, really damaging oftentimes, and it opened me up, you know, even the, we'd occasionally spend a weekend with him and it wasn't as if it was all horrible and this is the sort of this is the sort of complexity of life there's not oftentimes good or bad or you know um these black and white it's oftentimes really nuanced and you know he lived a life oftentimes homeless um and the images that remain with me is there were also moments of joy um that he stole from us. Um, he would create tremendous uncertainty in terms of what was likely to happen next for us and also for mum. And without mum, I would have been buggered from uh, from the love that she gave us and continues to give us, myself and my brother, um, but also the contribution that she made in the world while also remaining focused on us. Um, she, her focus is, she's a, she's a psychologist and her focus, um, initially was on, um, relationships and eating disorders. And I remember as a, as a, uh, as a little kid, she was sort of been five or six, but it sticks in my mind. Um, she took us down and it was, it was the sort of first federal election I can remember. And she said to us, the only thing you got to remember when you vote if you're not voting for yourself, you're voting for what's in the interests of the collective, what's in the interests of others. And at that stage, and I didn't know it at the time, but at that stage, she was shielding us from it. We weren't doing too well. <laughs> you know, we were we were um, really, uh, mum was really struggling because everything that she was bringing in was going out with the gambling. Um, and yet she consistently and continues to be focused upon others, the sort of what she would, word she would use and, you know, as common parlance, the sort of idea of social justice. Um, she was also, incidentally, um, for a 10-year period, um, Dolly Doctor. And oh. so... Gosh. Um, Gosh, what an amazing woman. And so it opened me up to, um, I guess, from a very early age, the importance uh, of relationships um and 
it's something that I think underpins the way I go about my work, but also the focus I've got. Part of my work is on the prevention of violence is, um, you know, the profound impact of relationships on people's um, well-being and, and living a, a flourishing life. So, Matt, you came back from Harvard, um, somebody deeply focused on the contribution that you could make, you can make or you could make in the world. What have you done since you've returned? Following um, the study at Harvard, I, I, I had the really good fortune of spending a, a couple of years with Connecticut's Child Protection Agency, um, working for Harvard's Government Performance Lab. And it was a real crisis end, and I'm not sure I'll ever see a level of poverty like I saw there. And that, I guess, motivated in coming back to Australia. I really wanted to um, move upstream, focus on prevention, early intervention. And the reality is that a lot of the, the harm that I saw in the US and for that matter elsewhere is because of the behaviour of men and boys. Um, now, this is far from all men and boys, but the reality is when violence is being used, it's oftentimes because of the behaviour of, of men. Um, and so I, I focus since returning on the issue of family violence and also the issue of male violence towards other men. And I've sought to do that. I'm trained as an economist. I've sought to do that with, with a real level of, of rigour translating research into practice and so that that's sort of um been my role with the center for evidence implementation and then subsequently with Jesuit social services related i've i've ran a um a council election campaign during um during lockdown which was which was bordering on an absurd time to 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 enter uh, local politics um and what motivates me in that role is I think we're at a moment with regards to our society where we're at risk of coming apart to a large extent. And there are a range of actors who I think need to shift the way that they're engaging to orientate more towards the collective and less towards the individual. And my view is that local government has a role to play in that. Um, whether the work, and this is specific to Hobson's Bay, the work we're doing on affordable housing, the work we're doing on sustainability, and perhaps most importantly in some respects, in the short term at least as we come out of COVID, the work we're doing to build social infrastructure and community connection. And so that's that's what motivates the work at the local government level. Um, and then finally, Liz, just more recently, um, have become a dad, um, which is a big part of my world at the moment. Um, little little Oscar is is two months old, and he's begging some serious questions about about purpose and the greater good, and the extent to which there is a sort of a focus on the immediate nuclear family, and then what surrounds that in terms of a contribution to uh, all the things we've talked about so far. Matt, one of the things that I value so highly in terms of what you bring to the board of the Menzies Foundation is the really strong connection you have to your purpose and your great perspectives on the greater good. Just I want to ask you um, for some insights around what you think we need to do as a society to move to a place where the greater good is the normal. 
not the things that we're advocating for. But first of all, could you just give us a little more detail about your work at Jesuit Social Services? Because I think it's important to highlight, Matt, it's in an area and it's working with people that some in the community might consider to be beyond or outside of considerations of the greater good. And yet I think your perspective and the work you do underpins, you know, the fundamental um, requirement of our capacity as a community to include all and to appreciate and understand why people find themselves at different points in, you know, in terms of the contribution that they're able to make and what our responsibilities. So can we just touch a little on that to some extent? Tell us a little more about your work at JSS and how you came to it and why you think it's important. Yeah, that's right. I, I guess Jesuit Social Services is a social change organisation and, and one of the values that really underpins our work is, is we go to where the need is greatest or where others can't or won't go. Um, and that historically has involved a significant amount of work supporting people as they leave prison. Um, people that, you know, and you've touched on this a bit, the society I think at times would rather just sort of not attend to, like just go go, go away, either lock them up or um, I, I don't really want to know about, about that stuff. Um, and overwhelmingly we've worked with, men and boys over that journey. And so the work that I lead at the Men's Project is focused on intervening before that point of crisis. And, and so there's three parts to that work, Liz. One is our research. It's sort of um, everything we do is, is, is grounded in that rigour around evidence and rigour around curiosity. Like what do men and boys think about some of these ideas that we know underpin the use of, of violence. We also do a lot of primary prevention work, and so in schools around respectful relationships, and, and, you know, this is, I think, a challenge that, you know, we see in the papers, you know, just about every week where um, we've, whether we've got adolescent boys who have been exchanging photos of, of teachers or classmates, like misogynistic attitudes, um, and these things are changeable. They're not, it's not as if, it's not as if there's there's some immutable fact that that men and boys will behave in this way. That these are underpinned by social norms that we've got to equip people like teachers, social workers, youth workers to challenge. And so that's a bunch of our, our I guess, primary prevention work. And then the third part of our work is where there's already evidence that there might be some challenges um, to intervene before those sort of early signs translate to something of, of greater concern. And, you know, an example of that work is we've just recently started Australia's first helpline for people worried that they are going to sexually abuse a child or, or people, adults, friends, family professionals who, who might be seeking advice to prevent child sexual abuse. And, you know, again, if we're going to prevent these behaviours, we've got to turn our attention to the people who are at risk of perpetrating those behaviours. And we've seen some progress with regards to family violence. You know, we've got the men's referral service, we're facilitating help seeking in that regard. And, and that wasn't the case, you know, 10 years ago. And, and so while the conversations are hard, 
the reality is that these behaviours, the use of violence, sexual abuse, for people who experience them, that's that's a profound toll on the rest of their lives. And so even though it's a bit uncomfortable to think, well, we're going to work with the people who are either already perpetrating this or or at risk of perpetrating, well, in my view, let's lean into that discomfort because if we can if we can prevent the profound impact on the victims of those crimes, then you know I'm I'm here for that. Uh, Matt, the thing that strikes me also, and uh, you know, the Menzies Foundation is genuinely focused on building a leadership movement that asks people to pivot to purpose, build their leadership capability, and contribute to the greater good. The greater good, as I've said before, encompasses the many. Um, mm. And I think it's interesting, you know, it's not just the toll um, of the people who are perpetrated against, but also a, a community where the perpetrators find themselves perhaps in a situation where circumstance and other things have contributed to where they find themselves. So the greater good is bigger than just making it safe or, you know, the, the place for the bulk there's this bigger responsibility across the whole community. What's the sort of reception you get to that sort of um, that platform? Do you know what mm. I mean? Like, how do you sense what is what do you sense the community's sense of responsibility is to those that find themselves in trouble as well as those? The honest answer is it. We've got work to do. You know, I, I will experience two types of responses, Liz. There's a thinking fast response, which is some version of lock them up, don't want to know about it, um, that's disgusting. Um, the visceral human sort of real real gut, gut instinct response. Once you can enter a conversation on some of these issues, things can, things can pivot. And, you know, I, I'll oftentimes <laughs> only... Only this week we'll get asked, oh, which which types of victims do you think we should be most focused on? And this is uncomfortable, but the reality is this binary between perpetrator and victim is just oftentimes a fallacy. Like our, our work with adolescents who use violence in the home, and there's an Australian National Office for Women's Safety report just this week, the overwhelming majority of those adolescents who use violence in the home have been victims of violence themselves. Mm. And the it's not deterministic, but the likelihood of an adolescent who used violence in the home going on to use violence against an intimate partner is significantly higher than an adolescent who hasn't used violence in the home. And so to say that somehow there's this binary between victims and perpetrators it might make for, you know, an easy sort of narrative to digest, but it departs so significantly from the reality of the challenge we're facing. And so that those realities and, you know, the reality is that boys are very often impacted by the use of violence in the home. You know, there's understandably a significant narrative on women and girls, and that's an important narrative. That's a narrative that um, has has taken literally decades to get on the agenda and needs to be defended at all at all costs. If we want to end violence, if we want to end sexual abuse, we've got to focus on men and boys, both men and boys as they're impacted by violence, but then 
men and boys as they're at risk of using violence. Uh, and I, I think we've got a ton of work to do, Liz, and it's what, what motivates my advocacy but also our, our program-orientated work to, to shift the gaze towards where we're most likely to, to end the problem rather than just be responding to it, you know, over and over again. And this is one issue of many we face as a community, homelessness, um, people who find themselves despite full employment outside of employment opportunities, um, increasing, increasing disparities between those that can afford to live and those that can't, a world in many ways, um, Matt, dominated by distrust, by less concern about others, by increasing polarisation, by um, insecurity about the future. In terms of your position, and I say because I think it's probably most fundamental as a father, Matt, in mm-hmm. terms of your position working in Jesuit social services and in terms of now your and your position as a counsellor, what do you think we need to do to reorient the conversation from me <laughs> to us? Mm-hmm. What do you? Why do you think the greater good is something we need to argue for. Mm. In terms of the different roles that you play in your life, what do you think are the steps we need to take? Gee, Liz, they're, they're, <laughs> they're significant and big questions that I, I don't profess to have inverted commas the, the answer to. Um, but I've got, I've got, I guess, some reflections, and I think they're, they're the, some of the questions that motivated me to join the board of the Menzies Foundation, to be honest. I... I don't think, and this goes to the first thing we need to do, I don't think there are enough people and organisations who are asking those questions. And if you're not asking the question, you're not turning off autopilot. Like there, there are a range of messages and pressures and, you know, it goes to the very heart of the way our society is structured that will orientate us inevitably towards the self. Don't get me wrong. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to look after yourself. There is a, there is a um, inability to go out and contribute to the greater good if you are not in, in a good space. And to your point about my role as a dad, increasingly learning that if you're, you know, your loved ones are, um, are not in a good space. And you know, just recently, I had the very good fortune of having the six weeks off work to learn how to be a dad. Um, and I'll take six months primary carers leave next year to sort of, again, learn how to be a dad. And I'm guessing in 18 years' time I will still be learning Matt, how to be a dad. Matt, you'll never stop learning how to be a dad. I absolutely <laughs> swear that will be a lifelong journey. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And it's not to disparage the emphasis on on self, but I think simply by asking those questions you're asking is a good start. And they're, they're hard questions to address Liz like I I find them difficult and I find my answers evolve over time and I think it's a function of life stage but and this is the second point I'd make one constant is being aware of the power that you have and making deliberate decisions about how you use that power and so if I think about where that comes from for me, so um, as I said, Dad lived a life 
in and out of poverty. He, just prior to his death, he presented it at hospital and he would have looked absolutely bedraggled, absolutely bedraggled. And he, I didn't notice at the time, but found out after his death, he, he had pneumonia and he sat in the emergency room for over 12 hours mm. and eventually went into cardiac arrest and died entirely entirely preventable and i'll never forget the call from the hospital there was a, there was the news that was delivered they called me there was the news that was delivered and then the immediately following that news was were you estranged and they had very quickly categorized him as someone who was not socially connected unlikely to cause many problems if you just waited for a bit longer and this is not a critique of hospital staff like our hospital staff do an incredible job but i worry that that's emblematic of of the society that we're at risk of moving towards and you see this in the us where there is very little room for missteps you know whether that relates to healthcare decent wages um a climate we can live in and so I think an awareness of the power structures that do exist and then people who are fortunate, and this includes me having graduated from Harvard, people who are fortunate enough to have power to take risks to make life a little better for people who are more vulnerable than themselves. And so there are choices that we make, you know, in coming back from the US, there's a choice that, you know, do I, do I go, a lot of people are counselling me, go into the private sector, you know, go and make your, your bucks. And there's just a, there's a choice there that we each have to make in terms of how we want to contribute um, to the world. And so, yeah, firstly, asking the question, secondly, being aware of the power structures that do exist. And then I think the final thing I'd say, and, you know, brought up Catholic, I, I, I guess, um, still identify with those values to a large extent. Um, find ways to be in touch with the poor. Not, not at a esoteric level, but quite like uh, having contact with people who are much worse off than yourself, who live different lives to yourself and it's probably one of the things that I I find is is most rewarding about my role as a local counsellor is you, you, you have no choice but to be pushed into worlds that are well and truly outside of, you know, what my, my inverted commas bubble would be. Um, and that creates, I think, understanding and empathy, um, which is what we're going to need in order to solve that, you know, you touched on some big problems in order to solve some of the challenges that, that we're facing. I think the really interesting part about that, and I sometimes I think in the Menzies Foundation, in our own narrative, leadership is a word that gets in the way, Matt, because yeah. um, what you're suggesting, which is really what sits, I think, at the heart of the greater good is all contribution and any contribution or any connection to the other is a worthwhile and important thing to do, that you don't have to be named a leader. You don't yeah. even have to consider yourself a leader. 
but it's that sensibility, that awareness, that contemplation of the greater good and that decision to act in your local community, in your street with your neighbour, all the way to in the council, in the government, whatever it might be. I think that's the motivation that we need to turn people on to. Um, and the other thing that strikes me, mate, about what you say is the greater good assumes uh, you to the other or it, there's a sense in the greater good in some ways perhaps of having to give a hand out versus a hand up, whereas I think the greater good is something much bigger than that. We all benefit from the greater good. Do you know what I mean? We, the greater good is in terms of the society, our society as a whole, the greater good, everybody ends up being better with a sense of their sense of responsibility and to co-create and contribute to the greater good. Mm. Are you seeing, do you see that, Matt? How do you think about that? Because I'm just always floored by the number of people that don't believe it or don't think about it or don't have a sense of responsibility in that regard. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What are your I thoughts think, about them? I think on the first point, Lee, is that the, the distinction between uh, to be a leader or to engage in acts of leadership is crucial. And this idea of a leader, I, I think, is is false. This idea that somehow um, we look to a prime minister to lead, when in reality our politicians increasingly, they're just a mirror to ourselves. But I, I would argue at least the last decade, we haven't seen leadership from our politicians. We've seen responsiveness. And I'd take that to um, the business council. I'd take that to perhaps even the union movement, that these these leaders are actually just responding to the, the, the sort of the sense they're getting from their constituency, which I think is exciting. Like I think that 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 means that there's a decentralisation of acts of leadership which create opportunities for other actors to come and and blaze a blaze a trail, and not to say that we disregard those um, you know traditional or institutional um, um, opportunities for leadership, government, unions, business, but it's a it's a messier, exciting set of opportunities that present, and I think the Menzies Foundation is is an example of what can happen where other actors convene and step into that void, including bringing in voices from overseas. You know, there's there's a sort of um, there's a sort of peculiar Australian characteristic where if someone overseas is saying it, then it tends to cut through in a way that 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 perhaps doesn't in Australia. And so these are all acts of leadership that I think are very different to to being a leader per se um but the other thing i think it's fascinating is the old the places we used to look for those things church congregations yeah. rotary um even the, tra the trade union movement political parties all the data says that those things are in steep decline that for whatever reason people aren't joining the sorts of places where they used to find a sense of community yes. um they used to have a place where they could find their tribe and avenues to give back. 
I wonder what Matt, what's going to emerge in its place. Like I wonder in this, you know, where we're so informed by technology, um, where there's such a curation for the information that's available to us. I wonder what is going to be the thing where what the new congregation is and where it's going to coalesce and what we need to do to tap into it. How are you doing that in terms of the way you talk about your work at Jesuit Social Services? Are you thinking in new ways about how you're tapping into a narrative which opens up people's minds or, or attitudes to what their bigger responsibilities are or is that still something that's elusive and difficult to find? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think we we haven't we haven't sort of solved it, please. But we do. There's a few things that cut across all of our work, and one is the idea of building communities of justice. And if you look at the level of trust people have in governments, you know, and don't get me wrong, I think governments can can make tremendous contributions to things that matter a lot. Uh, but given the plummeting trust in governments, I think there's a responsibility on community service organisations, including Jesuit social services, to make that contribution to firstly con convening, providing an opportunity for people to convene. And, you know, I look at our Centre for Just Places work. They're convening communities in, in the west of Melbourne around the impacts of climate change. And many times social service organisations haven't actually even considered that they've got a role to play in addressing climate change. So it's busting out of this idea that, oh, well, you're just, a, just an organisation that delivers services. No, no, there are opportunities for you and the communities that you're building to have an influence on a question like, well, what do we do on a 40, 45-degree day when the people we're delivering services to are going to be struggling to cope with that heat, oftentimes, you know, potentially having their lives put at risk because of that heat? And that's much broader than any sort of transactional service delivery. And so, ditto with our justice work. You know, you look at the campaign around Raise the Age of Criminal Responsibility. The idea that we've got 10-year-olds who are in prison, like we will look back on that and I think about a, a range of different facets of our society, just think, what? What? I couldn't agree with you more. It's inconceivable. Uh, inconceivable because the system doesn't have another answer, I mean, which is just, you know what I mean, it, it's just, I agree, inconceivable. And you, you look at what the system does, which I think is really informative. This is really informative and it goes to your question. You look at the, as one example, the Royal Commission in the Northern Territory into, into the Dondale Youth Detention Centre, and you look back over countless instances, child protection, very similar. We've had countless reviews, countless Royal Commissions into these issues, and we see similar, I would say there's been instances of progress. So it's not, not to say there hasn't been things that have evolved and changed. To me, it's about power. If you can't have a Royal Commission implemented effectively, I'm not convinced that the institutional power of government will do it alone. You've got to have organisations who are convening communities, which in turn are putting 
political power and pressure on governments and also moving into other sectors, moving into unlikely allyships that result in innovation that wouldn't happen anyway. And so, yes, I think it's something that is sort of very on, very much on our radar at Jesuit Social Services and we're a social change organisation. We're not a social services organisation. We're a social change organisation which demands a focus on building community and, and advocacy. And, you know, it's interesting, Matt, because that actually lies at the heart of the way the Menzies Foundation works. We're interested in a non-siloed, multi-sector consideration of the challenges that we address. And you alluded before to our interest in the world and in global context. Do you know, the reason that the Foundation seeks out the opportunities to work in those milieus is because of the power of finding yourself outside of your own comfort zone in a cultural context that you don't understand that forces you to deeply listen and to appreciate other points of view, to take account of different ways of thinking, of different lenses into the problem. And in the way that you describe, and I think the point you make about Jesuit Social Services being a social change organisation versus a social services organisation, we have to encourage or find ways to encourage people to work outside of the silos, to develop a new language that transcends a particular perspective if we're going to carve out a new reality about the greater good mm. is sort of what the Menzies Foundation aims to work and I think reflected in the sort of in your comments this afternoon or this morning as well. I look at the commitment you bring to firstly building those relationships and then and I can see I can see in your body language <laughs> this, this this makes you uncomfortable but the um the, the the reality is that, you know, and this goes, I guess, to the point that there are s systems and structures that will push us to work in particular ways. The way funding is awarded, mm. whether philanthropically or, or government, there is a oftentimes, and again, I think this is shifting slowly, 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 but there can be this idea of, oh, what's the program? What's the program and can you, like, just give me the KPIs? Like, how are you going to change X, you know, widget variable as a result of this program that you're running? Sure, there might be a role for that, but there is a whole series of activity that is required if we're going to shift some of these fundamental structures, structures related to injustices, that oftentimes isn't funded. and so. What comes off the back of that is huge amounts of energy and goodwill to shift those funding cycles, and I think that the Menzies Foundation is playing a pretty crucial role in, in facilitating those shifts. Well, we're trying, Matt, and thanks to people like you and your interest in supporting us in those endeavours, we're going to have a red-hot go at it is what I can say. But I briefly want to just, before we finish, just focus a little bit on you particularly. I, I would describe you, Matt, um, I think you underestimate um, the leader that you are and the importance of the perspective that you bring. In some ways, I'd describe you as a reluctant leader, which seems strange for someone who ha is in so many ways outwardly hugely successful and yet I think so humble and works in the way you do with such humility. Just for those listening to us, 
tell us a little bit about how you see yourself as a leader, how you how you cope with questioning your capacity to step up into those places and what your experience to date has been in that regard. I would self-identify as as a introvert. And I, I say that to people who work closely with me and they say, oh, you know, I won't swear. They say, you know, BS. Um, and so, yes, that's that's the reality. I, I also think that the emphasis on others is something I hold in a very deep, in a very deep part of me. And so the idea of, to your question, the idea of how I think about um, leadership is enabling agency in others, particularly in times of uncertainty. You don't need acts of leadership when things are on track. You know, things will just tick away. That's the sort of just the, the there's plenty of things in, in, in our world that can just tick away and don't demand acts of leadership. Um, but in times of uncertainty, I think there is, and it's not the only type of leadership, but there's, there's a leadership which empowers others to believe in themselves and to take action. Um, and that's how I view the role I, I play. I think that, you know, to some of, some of your probing um, it means there are instances where, you know, I, I'm not comfortable um, and I'm still working on, you know, really practically sort of sharing enough of myself to facilitate an understanding from others as to, you know, who I am, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because if, if folks don't get to see behind the sort of... Um, the sort of and into who I am, it's very hard to build agency in others. And so it's something that that I'm working on. Even today, some of what I've shared is 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 a sort of a a, a, a push rather than just focusing on on the issues, but focusing on who I am and, and what um why I I I am sort of bringing the energy that I do to the work I do. Um yeah the only other thing any other thing I'd say Liz is for um for and it goes a bit to your point about the nature of of leadership um there are so many instances where i've underestimated the power that i've had in particular circumstances and so encourage people particularly alumni and it's that's an increasingly diverse group but particularly alumni to just think about the the power you have in the different forums that you're in and just speak up speak up for what you believe in because absent that we're we're in a lot of strife if if people if people are just shrinking into what others think they should be or how they think they should behave, then things that really matter that affect people who are most vulnerable will never change. And so tuning into how it is you can exercise your power in the rooms and 
the relationships you've got, I think is a really crucial part of addressing some of what we've touched on. So, Matt, as you know, at the Menzies Foundation, everything we do is focused on asking Australians to think about their leadership capability, think about who they are, pivot to purpose, build that leadership muscle and contribute to the greater good. I think, Matt, you are just an extraordinary example of somebody uh, who deeply lives that and who's making a really important contribution to the world. And on behalf of the Foundation, I'm so grateful to have had this chance to speak with you. Um, in terms of your contribution as a Menzies alumni, in terms of your contribution to the board, and in terms of the really big role you play in ensuring that the greater good is something that becomes a reality. Thanks very much for your time today, Matt. Thanks so much, Liz.